Good evening. Uh, you're watching School Psych Podcast. We're very excited for a topic. I'm especially excited because I, I like assessment and testing, and so I'm like really kind of amped up for this. Mm -hmm. um, my name is Rachel. I'm a school psychologist working in Maryland. Uh, before we talk about uh, how to participate and a little bit about the topic tonight, um, I wanted to get a little sidebar discussion going um, just because um, I hope everybody's, you know, weeks have been going good since we got back from break, but most recently I got uh, the stuffing beat out of me from a kid kindergartner and uh, I got all these bruises on my shins and we were just having a conversation about that so we wanted to know um, what's your most like ridiculous or hilarious or crazy um, kind of work-related injury so if you guys want to tweet that out to us or put it in the chat box um, towards the episode um, towards the end of the episode we were thinking we might read out some of these um, things that we go through as school psychologists but I'm gonna pass it over to Rebecca Rebecca Hi everybody, I'm Rebecca, I'm a school psychologist in the state of Connecticut, and I am looking forward to hearing from you tonight. You can comment right alongside if you're watching on YouTube Live, um, comment in the live chat box, you just have to sign in, I believe, to your YouTube account. You can also comment on Twitter using the hashtag psychedpodcast, or on Facebook, also using the hashtag or comment directly to School Psych Podcast page or School Psych, your school psychologist. I'll be looking for your comments. And those of you watching us later, uh, hearing us later on iTunes or watching later after the live broadcast, feel free to continue the conversation online and we'll be uh, looking out for you um, in the week that follows as well. And here's Anna. Hi, I'm Anna. I'm a school psych in New York State. I encourage you to, to post some comments on the YouTube live feed. We love to read those. And um, I have a little story to add. Um, a couple weeks ago now, I got spit right in the face for the first time in my career. And I sort of was proud that I'd gone like eight years without. <laughs> um, and once I kind of got over and put some hand sanitizer on my face, I kind of was happy and sad at the same time. It's sort of a rite of passage, you know, I guess, <laughs> in the field, but also really disgusting. <laughs> Didn't see it coming, um, but I will next time. <laughs> um, okay, so we had a little poll uh, going on the Facebook page and the event page just to get the conversation started. And our question was, if there is significant variability among your cognitive clusters or indices, how would you interpret that? Check all that apply. So we had way more response than we usually do. We had 264 votes um, that said, I say the FSIQ should be interpreted with caution. Then at 138 votes, I explained that interpretation of the score below the scores below the FSIQ need to be considered for the best picture. 69 votes, I make a statement that the FSIQ is not a valid indicator of overall ability. 29 votes, I don't report the FSIQ. 19 votes, I indicate that the FSIQ is likely not an accurate reflection of the student's overall abilities. And then um, with 18 votes and 10 votes, we had the hashtag scatter doesn't matter. The FSIQ is always the best indicator of achievement. And then someone wrote outside of language delays, which is why we have the two different um, responses. So definitely some different opinions in the field. And we had um, several votes that had uh, a lot less, several items that had a lot less, so, so I'm not going to read those. Um, so to talk about this very interesting and um, controversial topic, we have Dr. Ryan McGill um, joining us for the second time on the podcast. Ryan McGill is an assistant professor and director of the School Psychology Program at William & Mary. Prior to WNM, he was a faculty member at the School Psychology Programs at Texas Women's University and Chapman University, and was a practicing school psychologist in Southern California from 2009 to 14. In addition to his current appointment, he's also a licensed educational psychologist in the state of California, a licensed behavioral analyst, 
and school psychologist in the Commonwealth of Virginia and a nationally certified school psychologist and BCBA. Dr. McGill regularly presents his scholarship at international, national, and regional conferences, and his work has been published in a variety of journals. He's also the editorial board member for several well-respected journals and assessment psychology-related journals. In 2016, he earned Early Career Research Award from Division 16, School Psychology, um, of the APA Association and the Trainers of School Psychologists. Most recently, he was selected to participate in the School Psychology Research Collaborations Conference, sponsored by the Society and Study of School Psychology and, and an Early Career Scholar. Thank you so much for joining us again, Dr. Miguel. Hey, I was hearing the stories and I would say, I don't know what's worse, being kicked in the shin or spit on or being an academic and having to go through all the stuff that we have to go through. So <laughs> we're all dealing with children. They're just different ages. Oh, God. Have we got a comment already? We did. Oh, I love it. Um <laughs> Uh, Corey says that she had a, a she had a spitter for a while, but she finally wiped it off herself and wiped it on the child and said, "No, thank you. This is yours." He didn't do it again. I think that's awesome. <laughs> that's your chance for tonight, everybody. <laughs> you have a spitter. <laughs> Rachel, you that you are very passionate about this topic and have uh, done a lot more assessment than me and Rebecca. So, can you start us off with your questions? All right. Um, so I've got a lot of questions, so I'm hoping that um, people tuning in will ask questions. So I'm not just, you know, <laughs> um, leading everything. I'm sure you guys have much better questions than I do. But my my first question, well, first off, Dr. Michael, can you just tell us a little bit about your research and this issue of interpretation um, versus maybe not interpreting or <laughs> what, what's up with that? <laughs> Yeah, what's really interesting because uh, my, my research really focuses more broadly on applied validity, mostly of cognitive tests. And this issue of scatter um, was not something that I was originally focused on. Like if you, if you would have asked me, you know, four years ago, if, if I was going to like do research on this particular topic, I would have probably said, no, I'm more focused on broader issues. Um, but it's interesting because the scatter issue is one that I just had to turn in my mid, uh, my critical review dossier. So you actually have to go back and kind of said like, you know, what motivated you to do the research that you did? And I was sort of genuflecting when I was a practitioner. It was this, this issue of scatter. It actually kind of started me on my path to being a researcher because I started to have questions about this. You know, I, like a lot of people out there, I was taught to do all these things. You know, if you see significant scatter, you invalidate composite scores and the omnibus FSIQ, or, or whether you do something more, a little bit more parsimonious and say it's not representative. Either way, it's, it's still the, I think you're just splitting hairs. You're really is a, a broader issue with the validity of the score itself. And so I remember asking people, my, my intern supervisor questions about this. It's like, Hey, so, you know, I'm seeing this all the time and every report that I review, I'm doing it. I was, I was told that this was rare, why, you know, why are we doing this? Like, where did this come from? And, and his answer was kind of telling was, well, you know, I was taught to do this and that was kind of the only thing we didn't come up with. So, um, but then after, you know, a couple of years, I, I started to look at this issue. And, and what was really interesting is we, even if you do a casual inspection of the literature, it's really hard to locate anything substantive that kind of proves that this is something that we should be doing. And so I thought that was kind of striking given that, 
this sort of scatter interpretive heuristic is in every technical manual. It's in every clinical guidebook. More importantly, it's passed down through clinical lore from generation to generation of school psychologists. So um, I decided to do a study kind of, you know, I thought it was sort of a straightforward thing that you could assess. Like if scatter, you know, has any kind of meaningful impact on a composite score, you should see something happen with regard to factor structure of the test, the predictive validity of the various scores themselves when you're looking at groups of scatter. And so my first study uh, was done in 2016, was published in Archives of Assessment Psychology, and I just basically took all the people in the uh, KBC Tournament sample that had a difference between their highest and lowest score of 23 points. I wanted to get a clear, you know, significantly, you know, significant scatter group. So that's why we didn't go with like 10 or 15 points. We wanted to make sure we were really looking at a group that had large levels of scatter. And just basically factor analyze that group and then looked at the predictive validity of the scores. And so what we found was is that the factor structure, the resulting factor structure of that group was no different than the regular normative sample. So there was no, you know, you could still get a full scale IQ score. Um, all of the different loadings were the same. So there was no meaningful impact on the structure. But then interestingly, what we found is in the presence of significant scatter with this group, you actually got better prediction in terms of external achievement with the FCI on the KBC2 than you did with the uh, a study I'd previously done with the normative group in general. I still haven't figured out a way to explain that one. So even, even though you saw slightly attenuated uh, um, effects with the general factor, so it was a little bit weaker factor, but not enough to like invalidate or say that it's not um, a legit psychological dimension, you were actually getting better prediction out of that score than you did with when the, fa the general factor was actually stronger with, with the, when you include all participants with no scatter. So that was the most substantive study I've done looking at it. Um, and really, when you look at the literature, there hasn't been that much in terms of, you know, looking at the structure and, and can you get these composite scores to emerge with groups with um, significant scatter. There has been a lot of work that's been done looking at the predictive side of things and all of those studies. So uh, Mac uh, Watkins, Gluting and Lay, um, uh, several others have looked at it and, and scatter. At this point, we've got probably five or six studies that show scatter has no meaningful impact on prediction, has no meaningful impact on the structure of tests, which is where we generate the scores from that we use in practice. Um, but then uh, recently, I just had an article published in Contemporary School Psychology where we looked at the diagnostic validity of does increasing levels of scatter accurately predict the presence of specific learning disability? Because this is kind of like, you know, uh, sort of an assumption that's out there. It really is an assumption that undergirds PSW um, and has been out there in the literature really for 40 years now. Um, and looked at it with the KBC2 and sure enough, the validity, the SLD validity sample. And when you run diagnostic efficiency statistics, basically what you found was that increasing levels of scatter predicted the presence of LD at about chance levels. And when you look across the, 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 um, rock curve itself, which kind of tells you, you know, how accurate it is as a, as a sort of predictive sign, there were points in the curve where it actually dipped below chance. So what that means to school psychologists, if you're using kind of, even in a generic way, the presence of significant scatter in one's cognitive profile to make input about the presence of LD, in some cases, you would actually be better off if you just flipped a coin on the table. Wow. And 
And I want to remind people, too, that, I mean, you, you talked a lot about LD and um, your research with the validity and, and, and cognitive scores um, in the earlier episode. So if anybody hasn't seen that yet, um, I think that's a good watch and very much related to what we're talking about tonight. Um, I do have a question with that. So you're saying that um, you're looking at prediction of LD. Being that LD is so haphazardly defined, um, how are you determining that, oh, yes, it predicted LD, or no, it was wrong in its prediction of LD when that's kind of a tricky? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. So anytime you're doing any kind of diagnostic, so like, you know, we talked a lot in the last podcast about the diagnostic validity studies, uh, trying to look at PSW parameters. And at that time, I mean, there was like maybe two. Now there's been about six or seven that have been done, all showing the same thing. Um, uh, basically, that that the presence of a, a confirmatory PSW pattern is a really good rule out test for LD, but it's a really, really poor rule in test, which is why we do assessment. Um, and now we've had about, you know, like I said, seven or eight studies that have basically, you know, whatever permutation you look at, they found the same exact thing. It operates at about chance levels at a positive sign. Um, one of the issues though, with all of that research is, is we don't have a gold standard. So we don't have an agreed upon definition. So even when you're lucky enough to have data or you have diagnostic condition coded, like when you have these normative samples where they have the validity, special validity groups where they've coded their diagnostic condition, it's basically a known SLD diagnosis. So at best, it's, it's not really telling you how it will operate in any particular environment because that can change. But it is giving you some kind of estimate in, in the sort of broader sense because these folks were diagnosed as SLD somehow by practitioners, and it's highly likely, you know, given what we know about referral conditions, that these would be relatively the same kids that you would see coming across your desk in most jurisdictions. Now, you know, again, whether they would actually qualify, depending on the condition you you actually employ, you know, um, I was just reading a study by uh, uh, Maki and Matt Burns, you know, showed that the, the diagnostic overlap is, you know, can be really significantly um, attenuated depending on the actual method you're using, whether that's PSW, RTI, discrepancy, or, you know, clinical judgment. So it is a good point. So at best, these are kind of estimates, and it's the best we can do to try and get some kind of understanding of how these models are actually going to operate in practice. Um, and then where did, um, so your research isn't supporting this whole, you know, interpret with caution type of thing that we see in just about every report that, you know, um, it's a very common kind of phrase or people aren't reporting the full scale IQ type of thing. Where did that start? Was that just a, oh, that makes logical sense, even though we don't have research. And so we're going to do it. Um, is that being taught in graduate programs? It seems like that's still um, kind of the norm. And does NASP have like a stance on it or how do you anticipate them coming out and saying one way or the other? Sorry, that's a lot of questions. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll try and answer that question in less than an hour. Um, <laughs> so as we were talking about before the podcast, one of the things that makes the scatter issue really interesting is because this sort of scatter hypothesis really undergirds a lot of the profile analytic methods that are used, whether it's PSW or it's just sort of generic profile analysis or it's, you know, scatter. I mean, when we talk about scatter, we're talking about really two things. We're talking about a very general prescription and we're talking about a very specific prescription. So the question that we just kind of got done kind of outlining was the more specific one, which is, should I quote unquote invalidate or interpret with caution composites when I see scatter? So the research on that issue has been univocal. So it's not just me. In fact, I would say I, I have just a, a relatively limited part in sort of understanding that issue. 
Um, you know, Marley Watkins has looked at the diagnostic validity of various permutations of scatter in the Western scale. It's found the same results. Uh, Mackman and Burnett looked at scatter in terms of the reliability of differences and things of that nature. Uh, more recently, uh, Schneider and Roman just recently published a study where they did simulations within a cross-battery framework and basically found that significant subtest differences did not invalidate the composite scores in, in almost every circumstance, except for if you didn't have a condition what's referred to as multivariate normality, which would be really rare given that the actual scores that we're using in cognitive tests assume multivariate normality. So basically, I can't think of an actual study. I, can't, I haven't located one in all the years I've been looking at this that's ever actually conclusively proved the case that, you know, to take Ryan Farmer's, you know, famous hashtag at this point, the scatter actually matters. There is some anecdotal research that looks at like, okay, in, in various clinical populations, usually TBI, those with more focal neurological impairments that they do have scatter in their profiles, but the, the sort of the brass tacks for school psychologists is, is, you know, we now have probably, you know, close to 20 different studies now showing that in the way that school psychologists are taught to interpret scatter and make these pronouncements, the hashtag is correct. Scatter doesn't matter. Um, so the question is, where does this come from? You're correct. It, it was kind of just this sort of interpretive, intuitive rule of thumb that emerged, really going back to the inception of the commercial ability measure itself. So you can go all the way back to like the 1930s and find in the clinical literature, um, you know, people kind of saying you should look at scatter and then sort of make inferences with respect to various patholo pathologies with the Stanford Binet. Um, really, the, the, the first formal system of interpretation that developed was um, by Rappaport, Gill, and Schaefer in the 1940s. They came up with what they termed diagnostic testing, the first kind of stepwise interpretive procedure that looks a lot like the, the sort of methods that we use today. Now, the difference that with their approach was it was purely ideographic. So they were just sort of saying, hey, look at these scores, and you kind of then make inferences about the individual based on your clinical intuition. And a lot of it was kind of just you visually plotting the scores, looking for peaks and valleys. That's kind of where it's sort of, you know, your, your nightly cocktail party knowledge. That's why we have that, that uh, section in the Wessler profile. That kind of comes from diagnostic testing. But these are really sort of interpretive things like, hey, if you see this, what do you think? If you see this, what do you think? And from 1950s to the 1970s, you really saw the emergence of all kinds of, you know, uh, various PSWs and unique profiles, and if you see this pattern or you see this scatter and you see this unique configuration of scores, it could mean this. Things really got off the rail. You know, Wessler in, in 1958 says, you know, um, if you see uh, attenuated performance scatter in, in, in terms of a, a higher verbal uh, performance score versus a verbal score, that could be an indicator of, of, of uh, psychopathy. And you look at the actual study where this is drawn, the difference was like nine points, which when you take into account the error in the test, it's like it's probably overlap there. So it got to the point where it was so bad that um, this is really what was the inspiration for Kaufman's intelligence testing method in the 1970s, the so-called Kaufman method. And he actually said in the most recent edition that was published in 2016 with the WIS-5, he said, you know, there was a need to impose some kind of rank order on these interpretations because things were just getting crazy. I mean, it really was, people were in these Wessler scales and these Binet scales like they were on the psychiatric couch. It was like almost like an intelligence test using it as a Rorschach test. So the Kaufman method is important because 
that was really where there was a uh, where there was an attempt to try and marry the ideographic with a more psychometric approach to test interpretation. So this is where we now get a lot of the approaches we use today, which is now instead of just sort of eyeballing the scores and looking at these things, now you're actually trying to apply some kind of criteria. So there's some kind of guide rails on this. So this is where we get the whole base rates thing from in the Wester scales. So is this a more defensible approach? Sure. But you still have a lot of freedom to vary within that method that has allowed the sort of clinical and intu interpretive uh, sort of intuitive judgments to, to flourish. And so I'll kind of just sort of wrap this up and say there's really two things that have happened with this whole lineage. One is if you go back to sort of the beginning of IQ testing and sort of, you know, flourishing of these methods, it really kind of shows us that this sort of idea of scatter and intuitive judgments and this just sort of general idea has kind of been passed down and encapsulated in practice since the very inception. You know, these things predate our understanding of the field of school psychology, you know, as a discipline. And this is this really starts before school psychology, we understand it, even exists. They've been passed down through clinical lore from generation of practitioners to generation of practitioners. And so you've kind of created this condition to where these ideas are, are subsisting through that sort of lineage. And it makes them almost impervious to any kind of, you know, study that you can do to prove that they're wrong. The other thing is, is that these methods emerged and were passed down and kind of got a head start in our business uh, uh, quite substantially before the time that we had these technologies that we have today to actually do the types of validity and psychometric studies where we can actually look at and do these things actually work. So from our side of the fence, we're really still playing 50 years of catch up. And, and, and you know, during that time, it's not like these methods and these techniques have stopped. They've actually continued. So we've got things like, you know, PSW, cross-battery assessment, which when you really look at the assumptions behind these methods and understand this history of profile analysis, they're really just reparameterizations of these previous practices. So that's kind of where they come from. And, you know, the thing about the intelligent testing method is it is it, whether you, you say, I'm doing the Kaufman method, those step-by-step -step procedures where scatter analysis is specifically outlined are in every interpretive handbook or in, are form the basis of the essential series. So why are they so popular? Because we know those sources are encompass the Hulk of clinical training. So those are the textbooks that we all were trained in and practice in our training programs. And then that kind of forms the basis of how we go out there and practice. So your last part of, you know, is this a popular practice in graduate programs? Yes. Um, in fact, the, you know, not being trained in these methods like I was, like I assume most of us were, would be a rare exception. Um, do we see, given kind of the discrepancy between what's out there in the research and what's out there in sort of popular practice and training, is NASP going to take a position on this? Uh, NASP has not taken a position on this. and I don't anticipate them doing so in the future. Um, but interestingly enough, uh, the Association for Clinical Psychology, you know, actually has started to take more of an active stance on these things and now actually has a page on their website where they, it's devoted to evidence-based assessment. And that's really been driven single-handedly by folks like Eric Youngstrom and, and um, uh, MASH and, and Barkley. Um, but I, to the extent to those discussions are permeating school psychology practice, they really haven't had an impact at this point. Wow. <laughs> I think a lot of people are watching and are like, oh. <laughs> um, 
Um, you mentioned base rates, and um, Rebecca was over in the um, the YouTube chat, <laughs> or was it Anna? And it was Anna giving me a hard time because I I always report the base rates, and I think that's again because I was probably trained to do that, and so that's just and and base rates to me kind of make sense, like the 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 method behind it and what it means and whatnot. Um, so I always report the base rates, but then I've been reading things. Um, and we talked a little bit about this before we went on air too. You know, we, we've got these Facebook groups now that Sykes are, you know, comparing scores and swapping ideas and whatnot. Um, and so I've been seeing some things on there about, um, you know, base rates maybe not being a good indicator of scattering these things because, um, you know, it's scatter is so common that we're mm -hmm. looking at base rates between two individual scores when really we're doing all these multiple calculations of is there a discrepancy here is there a discrepancy here like we're looking at so many different scores that you know even though it's uncommon between those two scores it kind of loses some meaning when we've got so many scores going on can you explain like base rates or what the is there concern with base rates should i be should i forget my base rate should i should i move away <laughs> yeah the the base rates are there's nothing wrong with the base rates the base rates are accurate it's like you know when we talked about last time it's like it all comes down to underlying mathematics you can't really argue with it um the problem with the way the base rates are are presented is they don't you know people i think look at the like you said you were right on the point you were talking about how the base rates that we have really talk about what is the um, what is the likelihood of this difference in these two scores happening in the normative population, mm -hmm. and so what they actually with within that limited context, you get a sort of rarer base rate estimate of significant differences. But that's not actually how we're interpreting tests. We're actually interpreting tests, like you said, by making pairwise comparisons between all the scores. So those base rates don't actually correspond to that larger issue, which is what is the likelihood of finding one or more significant differences between all of the possible pairwise comparisons that we're making? And when you actually look at why we say that they're, the base rates that are presented are a more um, conservative estimate of, or I mean a more liberal estimate of probably the likelihood of finding these things is because when you actually look at the normative sample as a whole and you ask larger question if I go on this fishing expedition and I actually do all of these pairwise comparisons any individual is the base rate for having at least one significant difference is approximately 50 percent one in two so for instance uh, with the KBC2 if you take a 23 point difference between highest and lowest score um, it's one I think it was something like 47 percent I can't remember offhand exactly what the number was and other folks have actually come in and said, you know, um, folks like Flanagan and others uh, just recently posted on the NAS message board and said, yeah, that's kind of the problem. When now that we've actually had a chance to go and actually look at this, and now that we've had studies that have looked at this, this, you know, kind of, you know, nice idea that we had that was kind of interesting, it turns out it probably is not very useful in practice. It's probably not something we should be doing. So don't take it from me. Take it from Don Flanagan, who went on the NAS message board and said, don't invalidate composites. Don't choose not to interpret composites. And it really is that issue. It's not just the, the validity part. It's the high occurrence of scatter. Scatter is endemic in the population, and therefore, that's why we get the diagnostic validity results we get, because something is really common in the population at large. Even if it occurs more often in a really focal clinical group, using that as a potential sign or indicator for that condition, the, the diagnostic validity stats are going to be really, really bad. This is the, you know, I think people have posted before 
and talked about the problem of inverse probabilities. That's what we're talking about. So when people look at and say, okay, I've got this LD group and they all have scatter, right? So therefore scatter is an indicator of LD. That's, missed, uh, that's not taken into consideration that scatter is also present in a bunch of people that don't have LD. So it doesn't function as a useful diagnostic sign. Um, I'm wondering about ID, intellectual disabilities, and the IQ, because sometimes there's kids whose full-scale IQ might be below 70, but then they have some areas that are above 70, and um, some people may say it's not ID because, you know, the verbal is 77 or whatever, but the full scale is below 70, and the adaptives are below 70. So how does the scatter play into um, ID? What's your opinion on that? Um, there's actually been a, a study that's actually looked at this, and I think we attached it in the resources page for the, the podcast. Um, there was also a related study that just looked at this issue with the WJ, but I, I attached the one that kind of looked at. So there was a study in 2013 by Bergeron and Floyd, and it's published in School Psych Review, and, and they looked at all the normative samples for um, various cognitive uh, tests, so the DOS2, I believe, the KBC2, the Wesser scale, and they looked at the IDs at that time, MR, but as we know, ID now, subsamples. And they were looking specifically at this issue. How common is it that an uh, individual who's diagnosed with LD has one of these scores that kind of is a breakout you know, score, whether in a low average or average range amongst all these different uh, part scores? And what they found was is that um, I think it was something like half of all individuals diagnosed with ID had at least one part score that was in a low average range or higher. Now, so, you know, that kind of inference you would say, okay, so this idea that if you see one of these breakout scores, um, it's probably not to say the child is not ID, especially when you have the converging evidence you talked about before with adaptives and everything else lining up. But then the question is then raised is, okay, well, if I've got a breakout score strength, the relative strength in something that's relatively low G loaded, like visual processing or processing speed, that implies something very different than, say, if the breakout score is like crystallizability or fluid reasoning. Interestingly, what they found, other than the Wessler scales, these breakout scores, so the patterns and the, and the incidence rate of the breakout scores did not follow that pattern of G-loading. So you had folks that had strengths in GC, strengths in GF. Um, it was only with the Wessler scales where you really kind of saw at more consistency. So it, it has nothing to do with the G load. doesn't appear to have anything to do with the G loading and the actual part scores themselves. So basically the guidance is based on what we know right now. Um, that's probably not a practice that's defensible. Wow. I might, uh, I may need <laughs> some help. I'm just thinking of, I've had cases, um, the parents, and people have kind of argued that a little bit with, like, even school psychs. I mean, you post scores with, um, you know, above 70, you know, a full scale IQ, like Emma said, you know, 70. And then you've got some scatter up here and half the people on these message boards will say, well, no, it's definitely, definitely not ID. Um, I feel like if I go to, <laughs> like, you say that it's legally defensible. So you're sure? Like, if I go to due process in some cases, <laughs> are people going to, I should, like, show these, um, <laughs> show these research articles I'll be good <laughs> yeah I mean you know that's that's the thing you know like I started doing look you know I always found it's like look if someone is questioning you and say you decided to take that stance it's like look you've, you've got empirical evidence to support it I mean at the end of the day 
Um, there is nothing in our state regulations that say you have to necessarily interpret tests this way. That's where our clinical judgment really comes in. And so that's why myself and my colleagues, we, we're trying to point practitioners to when we have these issues of where there are these popular interpretive techniques out there that not, haven't necessarily passed empirical muster, that, that you try to be aware of these things. Because like I said, that pull of clinical lore is really, really strong. And to be fair, why a lot of these things actually persist is um, a lot of these things are, are passed down largely not only through clinical lore, but also we were talking about this issue before through these non-empirical books and book chapters and, and workshop proceedings. And a lot of the people who are, um, you know, authors and, and participate in these forums, you know, they have prominent name recognition in the field. They're, they're sort of seminal names. And a lot of that is because, you know, as a practitioner, you say, oh, that person authored my textbook or that person, you know, I went to this workshop by. So, you know, I know who they are and they, and they have a lot of, you know, sort of that sort of um, there is a sort of cult of personality that goes on in our field. And, and interestingly, you know, a lot of people who have been kind of talking and kind of raising caution about these issues are very, very prominent individuals in the research community, but they don't necessarily have the name recognition because and, and this is a problem. And I'm fully mindful of this. I don't know what to do about it. I try to do my best by having my own professional website up and I put my stuff up. But access to the peer-reviewed literature is a problem for practitioners. And the other issue is, is you have how much is the primary source literature actually being stressed in the assessment training sequence in school psychology programs. So I, I encounter a lot of practitioners when I'm presenting around the country doing you know, at, at NASP and APA. We have these discussions. And you constantly hear the feedback of, this is the first time I'm hearing about this stuff. And, you know, I have empathy for that as a practitioner because, you know, I was trained in all this stuff too. I didn't start seeing these discrepancies um, and, and didn't encounter this voluminous countering body of literature until I started doing this stuff on my own. I started having these conversations. A lot of them were prompted by my advisor during my doctoral program. He was like, hey, take a look at this other side that's been out there for 50 years now that isn't necessarily what's presented in school psychology training. And like, you know, um, Rachel, like we talked about this before, it's mind boggling. Once you start to encounter this literature, it's like, wait, like, why was I not taught these things? Like, so it kind of raises the question and it's, it's the both answers are bad. Either the person that's doing these classes or is presenting these ideas um, isn't aware of this literature, which at this point, you know, you're talking about hundreds and hundreds of articles and some of those prominent journals in psychology and school psychology um, that are out there. Or they are aware of the literature and they're presenting a very one-sided view of things. So, you know, pick your poison. Both, both, of, those, both of those realities are equally as problematic. Yeah. Um... Wow, it's a lot. I'm trying to absorb all of this conversation, but we have a viewer question, which I'm interested in your thoughts on. She says, I'm doing an assessment, and the WISC-5 scores came back very scattered. Each scale score is about five point different, and the composite came out low average, the um, an average, but the full scale is very low, 79, because it uses... Um, the first subtest to measure it. My district uses the discrepancy model, so it's going to be hard to qualify the student as SLD. So my question is, would you still consider the FSIQ valid? So I worked in a, a jurisdiction for um, 
five five years where the discrepancy model was king. So you know, this was a big issue. Um, and this was a topic that came up a lot during my training, during my practicum, during my internship, and it was a, it was a source of a lot of consternation amongst my colleagues in terms of what do we do in that particular situation. And that's, you know, that's really where a lot of this scatter stuff kind of comes up. And it really gets to the issue of when you're saying, when you're using scatter to kind of, for whatever reason, to say that a full-scale IQ is not representative, oh my gosh, it's low you know, I need a 20 point discrepancy and it's coming at 18. I've got this scatter. Maybe I can look for an alternative composite. That's going to get, you know, me into that range where I can qualify the kid. Um, That's what I like to call the disability hunt, you know? So we're just sort of looking for any reason to qualify the kid with what we talked about last time, which is why when you do these audits, you know, like 25% of the kids don't actually meet criteria when you look at their assessment files. Mm -hmm. So a lot of clinical judgments going on. And quite honestly, you're always going to have that because we've got these kids that need help. We're trying to help them. We're trying to figure out a way to get them into the door. The problem with that is we know that scatter doesn't invalidate the full scale IQ. So if the assessment question is, is this a valid representation of the child's overall cognitive ability? The answer in almost every circumstance is yes, unless you have legitimate questions about the validity of the score. Do I have a kid that has a significant sensory impairment, right? Do I have a kid that has significant language impairment? Then you are, you know, then I would say, yes, you have a legitimate reason to possibly question that score. Now, the, the answer is not to then go and just take some group score and use that as an estimate of the kid's overall ability. In fact, Wessler in 1994 said, don't ever do that. That's elevating a lower order score to a, to a, um, to a um, particular need that it was not designed to do. Remember, we're estimating overall intelligence, which is, you know, I mean, all these CHC NISTAs out there who like talk about how useful this thing is, it's like they don't then then use it when they're interpreting scores out there. We think, say you accept CHC as truth, you're saying that all of these different abilities are the constellation of IQ. And so then you're saying, well, if so, so then if you're taking one of these scores out or you're elevating this score to a position which it wasn't designed, you're essentially then sort of ruining that model. So that's why when Wessler said in 44, back when we had more parsimonious um, models of IQ, IQ is the sort of aggregate of all these different abilities. So what happens is, is when you sort of say, I'm going to take this lower order score and elevate it, or I'm going to, you know, take a different estimate, which ostensibly would most likely give you a higher estimate of FSIQ for that kid in this circumstance, you're probably overestimating that kid's general intelligence, which means you're probably going to make a type one error by saying that kid's eligible for SLD. You're going to make a false positive recommendation. (laughs) I think we're all just like, Oh dear. (laughs) So yeah, I mean, and what you were saying too about, um, you know, this lack of communication, I think between researchers and the research and the peer reviewed journals and us practitioners, because, I think as practitioners, we're more likely to go out and, you know, buy a book off Amazon on how to do some of these things than we are to look at a peer review journal that maybe doesn't have, you know, conflicts of interest as much, you know, they're not selling um, a book. Like, what about, I've thought often, because I know um, speech language pathologists, I'm pretty sure that their professional agency gives them some sort of journal access when they're a member. Like, has NASP ever, I'm wondering if that could be something that if you're a NASP member, hey, by the way, you get access to this journal database. Like, would that be something that would be helpful? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, the, you know, NASCAR has to make money too, right? So, I mean, they had, I, I don't know if they still have it. Uh, when I was a practitioner, they had, you could pay like $100 a year to get access to EBSCO, which, you know, isn't exactly a great, it's better than nothing, but it's not a great resource. And, you know, to the issue of what you're kind of talking about, you can have access to EBSCO, you have to kind of know where you need to go look, you know? It's like, you can't just like hit a button and it's going to give you all these alerts to like everything I need to know about assessment. So, um, you know, one of the problems is if you're a NAS member, you get school psych review. Well, let me be honest with you. School psych review for years now has kind of taken a hard line stance and said, we're not going to, we're not going to publish anything on cognitive assessment unless it substantively advances, you know, policy. So there's, there's been stuff that I've had desk rejected there. Doesn't even go out to review because it doesn't meet that muster. This has been published in a tier one journal with a higher impact factor. So, I mean, that's, that's sort of the, the politics of journals and, and especially in school psychology, we've kind of lost access to outlets. So a lot of this stuff is being published in places like psych assessment, places like assessment. So, you know, the access issue is even more of a, of a problem when you have sort of those narrow specialized journals. And so, you know, I don't know how you solve that. Um, you know, that's why we do, you know, at least in my case, I try to do these things. I try to talk to local districts and stuff, but quite honestly, I mean, you are battling a machine. I mean, you know, gosh, if I Google search a prominent name that I won't, you know, name on here to out of professional decorum and all the different workshops and consulting this person does around the country, they're allowed to kind of be given free reign to say whatever the hell they want. Oftentimes, I've attended these sessions where very little peer-reviewed information is shared, and certainly none of this sort of counter-review is ever discussed in any legitimate way. I mean, I just, look, I don't have tenure, okay? I can't go around, you know, and make a living doing that, um, although it would be nice to get paid, you know, $5,000 a pop where I can, you know, just sit there and sort of propagandize for three hours. But, you know, th that it's, it's like we're fighting an uphill battle. Like you said, it's, it's much easier to get people to buy books. Um, and, and the other thing with that too is, is, you know, when you do a book proposal, you have to make money for the publisher. So contrast the only clinical guidebook that I know of that actually does an empirically based, um, sort of informed approach to cognitive test interpretation, which is the Kranzler and Floyd text that was recently published in Guilford in 2013. It's about that big. There's only so much you can say when it's like interpret full scale IQ and beyond that you know, employ caution. And, and here's all the reasons why. Contrast that with Sattler, contrast that with the CIA book, which will probably is coming out, you know, to probably be 800 pages, you know, and that's going to generate more revenue for the, for the publisher. And so again, that's why, like you said, we have this issue of conflicts of interest. And one of the reasons why I think these conversations haven't been more substantive in school psychology is I do think compared to other disciplines, we do have a problem in terms of the influence that the publishers have, the influence with which these individuals who are deriving significant amounts of income from, you know, workshop honorariums, consulting honorariums, you know, royalties they get from tests and, and you know, software that they develop. Um, they have such an influence and hold in our business. And that's why, you know, I, you, know you see on these, these groups, you know, we, we know at least, at least we're taught we need to have this filter. But I'm not sure, you know, I know, like, I'll just say this, there's, there's a non-trivial proportion of practitioners out there that I don't think understand the fact that, you know, these forums are riddled with these conflicts of interest and thus we need to have our filter when we're sort of interpreting this information. You know, you post articles on these things 
you know, from tier one respected publications, I'm not saying, look, there's an article and therefore this is truth. Look, again, you have to have your lens there too. But then they come back and you, well, you know, I heard in this workshop that someone said to do this and therefore that's valid. These workshops function largely as propaganda devices where these, where these ideas are promoted and the sole goal of these venues and many of the ones that I've been to is to promote the selling of product. And so that's what people need to understand. We understand the ramifications of this in areas like the pharmaceutical industry, but we, we had the same problems in school psychology and assessment, but we have not yet as a discipline had these substantive conversations about, you know, and again, I have seen articles that have been published by some of these individuals where these conflicts of interest are not disclosed. Um, I've seen conflicts of interest that have not been disclosed in terms of, oh, by the way, our researchers being supervised by a team from the test publisher. So the practitioner, even if they're trying to access the peer-reviewed literature, you know, you have all these hurdles you have to overcome. You know, there are issues where, you know, I won't disclose, you know, it, you know instances where I know where this has happened, but we know this has happened. There are individuals even where you think, okay, those are sort of latent conflicts of potential conflicts of interest where these things are kind of well known. If I'm a test author and I get royalties, you know, and I, you know, whether I disclose that or not, there are instances where we have people that are appear to be independent researchers who are actually paid consultants by the test companies. And so they're publishing these articles under the banner of their institution where they're not disclosing this. So, you know, I'll let you guys do the math on that, but you know, it's almost impossible to figure out if those things aren't disclosed when they're actually present, you know, by myself, much less a practitioner. So, I mean, there's all these things that are kind of working against the dissemination of knowledge. And I'll just sort of leave this because, you know, I know we've got other things we want to go to, but you know, we're having a day of rocketing in psychological science with the replication crisis and all this stuff going on. And there's these substantive conversations that are happening. The day of reckoning in school psychology is coming soon. And it's going to be a really, really bad day when we kind of look at this stuff and say, oh my gosh, all these warning signs and all these theories and all these ideas, some of which haven't even undergone any substantive, you know, um, test of strong inference that have been passed down. It, it, the day is coming and, and we're starting to kind of have those conversations on the periphery, but nowhere near like it's going on, like social psych and personality psychology and experimental psychology. And I would argue that, that, you know, all of those things are, are probably just as rampant in school psychology and especially in the world of assessment with these conflicts of interest. Oh my, that was a, a whole lot. <laughs> Thank you. So we did have a viewer question and I'm going to read it to you. Um, Corey um, was wondering, she just uh, has been noticing that with the WISC-5, the full-scale IQ is based on seven subtests and she's found that the full-scale IQ is lower than the other indexes. Um, do you have any opinions on the WISC-5 or on that statistical observation? Yeah, that can take a lot. It basically has to do with regression to the mean. So, for instance, when you're, when you're looking at those profile of group scores, and so, like, let's see I have, um, you know, a score of, I don't know, 80 across the board, which would be, like, I don't know, 15th percentile. The FSIQ is really kind of assessing – what is the what is the percentile rank? Where does it? What is the the odds of having that particular profile in all of those scores? What is the percentile rank associated with that? So so that's often where you get these FSIQ or even in some cases composite scores that are lower than their constituent parts. 
But that really just has to do with the base race and the probability of where that particular kind of profile or that, you know, kind of aggregate constellation of scores falls within the normative distribution. So it doesn't make intuitive sense to people, but that's really just what it comes down to. But it doesn't mean the score is invalid. Um, it's just sort of you have to understand regression in the mean, and, and sometimes that occurs and sometimes it doesn't occur. But, you know, that, that is a really tough one to kind of – especially when you first get out into practice and season the practitioners really kind of understanding the mechanism by how that operates. So I could have, you know, two scores that are here and then the composite score is lower and that doesn't make sense to me, but the composite score is really in terms of where we define that percentile rank is, is what is the, the percentile rank associated where these two you know, scores occur in a profile and that just mm -hmm. happens to be there. In a different normative sample, it could actually be the straight average, although it tends to be, you know, somewhere off of that in almost every circle. Thank you for that. And Corey said that's hard to explain to parents. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I do. I want to touch that tar baby with a ten foot pole. Uh, um, I've heard um, of, and, and tell me if this is the right uh, term or the right thing. Um, the composite extremities effect is that kind of what you're talking about, or am I off base with that? I'm well, you know, when you've got composite extremities, yeah. So when you have a rarer occurrence of scores, like whether scores occurring below the mean or above the mean, um, that is less likely to happen. So that's usually when you're going to get these kind of weird composite scores that don't make a whole lot of intuitive sense. Intuitively, the way that we look at composite scores is we look at sort of the profile of their constituent parts and we kind of do a rough sort of approximation of the average. So whenever we see a deviation from that that sort of rough average we go wait that doesn't make sense well it's kind of that's not how these scores are calculated so they're, they're sort of they're normed and they're, they they create these distributions and then so those constituent parts then we get another distribution and those distributions are not approximate they're different distributions for the different scores and different percentile ranks are developed therefore we get different breakdowns in terms of the standard scores that we then interpret and that's where you get this phenomenon Things would be much easier if we just average them, but that's not the way it's done. Gotcha. Um, all right, I've got another question. So, how does this tie in? Um, so, neuropsych. Um, anytime I get a neuropsych report, there's all sorts of you know comparisons between scores, subtest comparisons. Often, so we're not even necessarily dealing with composites and full-scale IQs. We're really doing kind of that profile analysis, and we're seeing kind of this emerging um, field or kind of a field of um, neuro school psych or school neuropsych um, where people are getting credentialed through programs, which I think are kind of like private programs. I don't think that NASP or APA um, is leading that from my understanding, but maybe I'm wrong. What are your thoughts on those fields? Because um, it just seems like that doesn't mesh very well with some of the research that you're talking about. Well, I mean... Uh... I think you have to separate between the, you know, these these various programs. You know, there's a cross battery assessment certification program. There's there's been a school neuropsych um, certification program that was uh, created. Uh, not it was created, but definitely uh, my one of my former colleagues, Dan Miller, um, was one of the, the sort of the major. It has been a major sort of uh, a proponent of sort of this movement. School neuropsychology in general has been around since the '80s. Um, that really started with um, George Hind and. Um, so it isn't a new thing. The credentialing things are relatively new in terms of, you know, providing kind of a, a sort of um, endorsement um, for folks to use out there. And, and 
you know, I'll kind of stay away from that talk in terms of like, you know, what do I think about the, the ethics of that? And, you know, that kind of thing. you can go and look at some of these doctoral forums in terms of when school neuropsychology gets brought up and it gets pretty controversial. And it gets controversial because people are, you know, sometimes sort of conflating this term school neuropsychology with neuropsychologists. And it gets really dicey. That gets into credentialing issues and the Houston model and, and uh, those guidelines for when you can refer to yourself as neuropsychologists are very, very, very specific. Um, so really, though, aside from that, so theoretical is, you know, neuropsych, a good idea. I taught neuroscience. You know, I think learning about the brain is cool. Um, but it, it doesn't, you know, all of these measurement issues that we've talked about in, in the previous podcast and then, you know, when I post on these forums, these are things that you're going to have to confront whenever you're doing these kinds of analyses, so I think sometimes people are misguided into thinking that theory is like a form of validity. It's not. Now, when theory aligns with the psychometric analyses, all right, that works. That's a perfect world. But, you know, because I have this theory, whether it's school neuropsych or whether it's CHC or whether it's insert anything, you still have to confront those psychometric issues. So the biggest problem that we've known for 40 plus years now is whenever you're gauging in all these pairwise comparisons, it's a high likelihood for type uh, type one error, you know, these false positives that you get because you're just sort of like looking at all these different scores, you're likely to find something. Part of that is the measurement unreliability in the tests. Part of that is the fact that scatter and these unique PSWs are so common in the population. Um, the problem that I think most people don't understand is if you ask them in the aggregate, are discrepancy scores, are different scores reliable? Most of them will say, well, yeah, I learned that in grad school. Discrepancy scores are horrible. They're terrible. Well, what do you think scatter is? Scatter is a different score. You're looking at two different scores. You're looking at a profile of scores. And what you're ostensibly interpreting is that different score. And so that problem, those psychometric issues with the different scores permeate all of these things. So I always laugh when people are talking about like PSW, like, oh, the discrepancy model sucks. And you're like, so PSW is the discrepancy model times 10. All of those same issues are going to be present, except now they're magnified because you're doing more than one pairwise comparison. You're doing like 20. Um, so again, it's, it's not that, look, these are really cool ideas and they make intuitive sense to us. The problem is, is we have these measurement issues. And here's the problem. We know that clinical judgment, informed clinical judgment, is the most valid way for interpreting tests in practice. The problem is we also know that measurement issues confound the correct application of clinical judgment always. And so there's no way for clinical judgment to overcome these endemic problems. When you get bad scores, no matter how seasoned of a professional you are, no matter how much training you have, no matter how much theory you try to apply, you are going to be led astray. Not always. Sometimes you're going to be that blind squirrel finding an acorn. We're not always going to be wrong. But the question is, is that we need to be asking is, we've got all these cool ideas. We're making these decisions in the presence of all of this uncertainty. How well do these techniques allow us to overcome those hurdles and, and get at the right decision more often? And that's where those diagnostic validity studies are so important because they are the brass tacks for what we're trying to do out there. You can say, look, you've got these unique profiles, but at the end of the day, if they don't actually allow us to overcome that sea of noise, then, then they really don't matter. They can be these cool ideas, but they really don't matter. And I would argue 
that at the end of the day, even if you have positive diagnostic efficiency stuff, what is most compelling to me, and I think should be compelling to all those out there working with kids is, is the fact that even if we had that, where's the treatment validity evidence? So yes, maybe I get a correct diagnosis, but the fact that those things are not tied to any legitimate positive treatment outcomes. And you had Matt Burns on earlier, talked about 40 years of researching this, 200 plus studies. Okay, I got the correct diagnosis. Yay. I thought our job was assessment to intervention. At the end of the day, if you don't have that treatment validity link, it's like you've done a whole lot of work that really doesn't have a meaningful impact for that kid. We have uh, one reader question I'd love to squeeze in. Um, the question is, GC and GF have larger statistical loading. Um, so if one or both of them bring down the overall IQ, uh, shouldn't we be cautious about interpreting the IQ? Uh, I would say no, because unless you don't think that, that again, what do you think FSIQ as a proxy for G is made of? If it's made up of GC and GF, then it's possible that, that that's that kid's score. I mean, it's possible the kid has a weakness there. Um, we have this sort of assumption, and again, you want to talk about clinical myths and, and lore. Really, people have this assumption of what I like to call unitary G theory. They've been taught for whatever reason that all the scores kind of need to be flat. And if I don't see it, if I see any departure from unity in a profile, then and this is really the idea behind scatter analysis to begin with, going all the way back to the 30s. If we see any departure from unity, then we're invited to make all these speculative inferences about you know, pathognomonic meaning, about differential diagnosis, about differential treatment applications. And again, those are useful ideas. But again, we get to this idea that on what basis do we assume that things should be unitary? These things are all imperfectly correlated, so there's freedom to vary there. And the fact that you have such high scatter in the population. So as an example, I think uh, there was a poster session at NASP. Uh, I believe it was Mark Ledbetter who looked at GFGC differences in BJ4. It's like something like 23-point differences between those two scores in, in one out of every four individuals in the normative sample. So again, it's maybe it's just you know again we need to maybe be asking the more parsimonious question, but it's not sexy and it's not esoteric. Maybe the kid just has a low score in GF. Maybe the kid just has a low score in GC. Maybe it's just what it is. So again, if that's reality, then the most valuable again, what is our research question? What we're all sort of clinical researchers out there when we're doing these assessments. If my question is, what is the kid's overall ability? then that full-scale core is going to be the best estimate of that unless you have some kind of funky thing going on. Again, I would argue, why did you give that test? Like if you know you got a kid with a language impairment, why would you give them the Wester scales? But you might have those circumstances. Again, so it's not a universal thing. I'm not saying all you ever interpret is FSIQ. There might be a legitimate reason where you would question the validity. What I'm saying is based on the extant research and the lack of any countering evidence on this issue – the reasons why we're doing it or invited to do it in school psychology are not those things. So again, we just maybe have to say, if we're interested in what is that kid's overall ability, and that's where I would invite people, go and look at Joel Schneider's video. He breaks this issue down really, really well. Again, it's what, is, what are we actually trying to assess? If it's this more global dimension, that global composite is going to be the best estimator of that in almost every circumstance. It's just we've been caught 
again, for reasons that have never been empirically validated, that to, to sort of look for all these reasons why that not be the case. Ryan, if, if you could, if you were the king of the world and you could define um, what the perfect school psychologist's role would be like for in the best interests of children, what would that be? I mean, we kind of talked about that a little bit. If I ruled the world, which one I probably, I don't know if I'd be, uh, uh, you know, researching IQ tests for a living, but uh, <laughs> it pays the bills. Um, I think that we would be advocates for, you know, I'm sort of puzzled by all this energy. Like, you know, you look at these Facebook groups and it's like, I, I like, you know, oftentimes because I have no life, and I'm looking at these things at like midnight, like one in the morning. And it's like, I just keep thinking like all this time and energy that's spent debating, like, you know, there is like almost like a fervent religious like devotion to this stuff. Okay. And I'm like, look, I, I just don't understand it. Like, I mean, I never like was became so psychologically invested in something that if someone said, Hey, here's all these research studies that probably show this is not something we should be doing. I'd be like, Oh my gosh, my world just got blown. I, I can't look at this stuff. I can't listen to that person. That person must have an ax to grind. Um, I'd be like, all right, whatever. You know, I'll go and do something else with kids. Um, but this is kind of related to that question. I was I was talking to ISPA in, in the UK this summer. We were doing a roundtable symposium. And I was kind of sitting listening because, you know, in every one of these these workshops, you get the same sort of reactions. Most people are kind of like, oh, you know, there's not really much to, to argue with there. It's, it's what the literature says. Like, you know, I'm a scientist practitioner. It's what I should be doing. You do get some people, though, and I think this is a completely valid reaction. They're, they're the ones who are like, this is the first I've ever heard about this. This kind of makes me uneasy, but I want to do a little bit more thinking on this before I make a decision. And that's, I would say, probably the more appropriate reaction. But then you always get in a group of like 100 people. There's always like two or three like just true believers, sunshine pumpers. Or, I mean, they say things like, oh, you know, that I know that's the, the empirical evidence, but, you know, I know this stuff works, so I'm going to keep doing it, right? And you're like, okay, I, I don't know how to speak to those people. But it kind of dawned on me when I'm sitting there for some reason, you know, these rare moments when I have a when I have a sort of epiphany, you can judge whether it's useful or not. And so I think there's something else that's going on here. I kind of started asking the question, like sort of thought experiment of like, why is it that people are so tied to these things? And I think, you know, there is a certain comfort. And I would tell you this as a practitioner who did this stuff in spending all of this time doing these assessments and sitting in my office, writing these reports and presenting these IEP meetings, right? The idea that I would have to confront that maybe all that stuff is not very useful or isn't useful in the way that I'm employing it. It takes up all of this time. That kind of causes like an existential crisis because it's like, all right, even if you're willing to accept, okay, I'm okay. Ryan's right. So what do I then do? Holy crap. I've been, I don't really know anything else. If you were like me, 80% of my training was in this stuff. Then you quickly confront, and I'm telling you from personal experience. All right, what do I do with all that time? Wow, I don't really know a whole lot about that other stuff. I don't know a lot about direct intervention. I don't know about evidence-based academic interventions and really doing paradigm shift in RTI and a truly curriculum-based evaluation. So, I mean, 
you really confront that reality pretty quickly in a lot of circumstances. I know there's a lot of people that really do know that stuff, but I think, you know, in a lot of these contexts, that's, that's kind of a force that's operating there. So I think, you know, in a perfect world, school psychologists would be doing assessment, but we'd be doing it in a much more parsimonious way. Um, I think there's a lot of things that we could say about individuals by doing these comprehensive assessments, but I think what we can inference from them is a lot more general in nature. You know, what is this kid's general cognitive ability? Is that a potential explanatory factor for why this kid's struggling in school? We can do curriculum-based evaluation pretty well, but that's really tough for people to do. I mean, really going in and doing these nuanced, you know, assessments, you know, CBM, reading probes, looking at, you know, learning rate versus the sort of normative comparisons to where the kid's at, local norms and things like that. Um, so there's some valuable information to be gained from assessment, but I think we spend way too much time devoted to the kinds of things that take us away from those applications. Like, you know, I mean, it's like, it's just like, do this thought experiment. When has entering information to an Excel file ever led to a kid benefiting from an academic treatment or, you know, remediating a learning disability? I'm still waiting for that evidence to come out, though I won't hold my breath. But think about how much time is devoted. And honestly, you know, with this issue with the – I know I make fun of the expats, but I've been to three different divisions this year, and the comment from practitioners is who are like, I believe in PSW. I believe in the expats. But good Lord, does it take a lot of time, and it takes a lot of, you know, this complex stuff. And I'm like, you know, my question is what if that time was spent actually working and doing an intervention with kids? Where do you think you get more bang for your buck? But, you know – Again, we're, we're confronting these forces and ask us to, to you know, ask a lot of uncomfortable questions about ourselves, about our training, about the direction of our field. And, you know, again, I empathize with practitioners. These are really tough things to really ponder and ruminate about. But, you know, we've been having these debates for 30 years now and, and, and we have to really kind of look at, you know, and I'll just sort of leave it with this, you know. There are people who are kind of starting to say, even proponents of these methods and these techniques who are kind of saying, look, 40 years is a long time, you know, for the fact that there's been no real strong, compelling evidence to emerge out there to support this stuff. Um, and at some point, you know, there was an article by a, um, a, a response in a commentary, uh, Joel Schneider and Alan Kaufman, of all people, who have been major proponents of using cognitive assessment to derive academic treatments. And they kind of said, look, you know, we got to be honest, like we're looking at the literature. And if you look at it from kind of a balanced viewpoint, it's like most of it is just people making assertions of the people making assertions of the people even making further assertions, you know, self-citing themselves. There's not a compelling body of empirical literature out there to support this stuff. And they kind of said at some point, if you're a sentient being, you're going to have to say at some point, we've got to give these things up. At some point, we've got to say, look. These are really cool ideas, but at the end of the day, we don't do things that we think work. We do, should be doing the things that have been proven to work. And that's how scientists should operate. And I would argue that all school psychologists are scientists, whether they like it or not. So at the end of the day, I think in a perfect world, we'd be focused more on intervention. We'd be focused more on prevention. And we'd be focused on utilizing assessment in a much more parsimonious way to ask more general questions about the individual. <laughs> I mean, I feel like, um, and I know we're running out of time, so I'm <laughs> We're over time, Rachel. Yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know, I don't want to stop. <laughs> um, 
yeah, my fear is that we're becoming kind of tarot card readers and that, yeah, that's that's hurting us as a field. If we're spending so much time, you know, reading people's palms, oh, yeah, this score means this and this, and we're just, we're invalidating, we're discrediting ourselves um, and hurting ourselves. Well, that's an argument that's been made out there in terms of, you know, school psychology looks a lot more like psychometric phenology than, than you know, educational or school psychology. I made this comment in that same forum. I said, you know, when you really think about it, when you look at these forums, when you look at what's kind of being presented in these professional message boards, um, there's not a whole lot of school in school psychology. You know, there's not a lot of talk about, like, you know, I've got this kid with this reading problem. What are, you know, the evidence-based, they, those, those threads occur. But in the comparison to how many people are out there trying to divine, you know, these interpretations, from these, you know, engaging these complex configure analysis of cognitive data, you know, I mean, we've talked about, you know, there's, there's a compelling body of literature to suggest a lot of this stuff doesn't work. Um, yeah, I have the same question, you know, and, and, you know, I, like I said, I do empathize because there's a lot of practitioners out there who have these same thoughts. You know, this isn't a fringe group of ragtag people. These are very prominent individuals in our business. Um, you know, folks like Paul Meal, who, is considered by many to be the most influential psychologist of the 20th century. Um, Eric Youngstrom, we've talked about before. Um, you've got folks like within our own business, like, you know, Gary Kennedy, Marley Watkins, uh, Randy Floyd, John Kranzler, Alex Bojan, um, Stefan Dombrowski. Um, these are, these are some of the most respected minds in not only school psychology, but psychology writ large in terms of assessment. These are individuals who are in many circumstances elected to the Society for the Study of School Psychology, which is considered one of the highest academic honors in our business. Uh, I certainly wouldn't want to be on the other side of an argument with many of these folks. Um, but again, the degree to which these names permeate the conscious of practitioners because of those issues that we talked about, I just don't think people are aware of that because these individuals are spending their time um, publishing in the peer-reviewed literature because that's the currency in academia in terms of tenure and promotion. So, um, you know, I, I wish I could say it almost seems like, and what concerns me is the, the sort of, it seems like the popularity of these techniques is increasing and discordant with the amount of evidence that's being provided. And what I don't think a lot of people realize is, you know, there's this, uh, Kranzler et al. wrote a kind of commentary with regard to XBA, uh, the PSW DDC method of cross battery assessment. And they wrote a rejoinder to Flanagan. and he said, these ideas are not new. That particular method of PSW has been in the literature since 2001. And they said we did kind of this search for an empirical article to support the use of this method. And they were only able to um, locate two um, citations, and they were both commentaries. Um, I would argue, I mean, you know, a lot of these kind of articles are floating around in these, these lower-tier journals that don't often come up in searches. There's been several studies that have shown that, yes, again, you can find these unique cognitive profiles in clinical groups. But the question is, when we then try to say, does that particular sign accurately predict LD, however you conceptualize it, to the point where I can use that sign or that PSW or that unique pattern at the level of the individual, that's where those group differences erode. And that's how we're interpreting tests. So, you know, all we can do is just keep trying to keep, make people aware of this countering body of literature and disseminate this knowledge. Um, but at the end of the day, it's, it's an uphill battle. You know, like you said, you're fighting popularity, you're fighting clinical lore, you're fighting these sort of access gaps in terms of the peer review literature 
And, you know, these are, again, these are great conversations that I think we need to be having about how do we remedy some of those things. Thank you so much, Dr. Miguel, for joining us. Um, it was very informative and um, overwhelming in statistical knowledge. And, you know, Rachel was loving it. You know, even more about stats than her, which is so great. So thank you so much for taking the time tonight to explain these things to us and sharing it with the general public. Sure. sure. Um, our next episode on psychosis, we accidentally booked on the Super Bowl night, so we're going to be rescheduling that. <laughs> so we'll, we'll post it on our Facebook page. And have a good night, everybody. Good night, all. Good night.